Hello, and welcome to the Pet Coke podcast. In this series, we'll be speaking with key industry participants to gain their insight into the latest trends for petroleum coke markets around the world. I'm Lauren Masterson, editor of the weekly Energy Argus Petroleum Coke publication. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the shift to lower carbon aluminum markets with my guest, Les Edwards, Vice President of Production Control and Technical Services for CalCenter Rain Carbon. The Pet Coke podcast is brought to you by Argus Media, a leading independent provider of energy and commodity pricing information. Thank you for joining me today, Les. One thing about the COVID-19 pandemic that strikes me is that it seems to have accelerated some long-term trends that have been around for a while, but really seem to have picked up speed over the past year. The transition from fossil fuel energy to lower carbon alternatives seems to be one of those trends in my mind. So in Rain's latest earnings call, CEO Jerry Sweeney mentioned that developing environmentally friendly products for the 21st century will be one of your main goals over the next few years. As a company that buys and sells carbon-based products, I'm curious, what are some of the initiatives you're working on to transition the company into a lower carbon future? Well, uh, thanks, Lauren. Uh, thanks for the introduction and thanks for allowing me to, uh, to participate in this podcast. So yeah, so I guess Rain Carbon, um, we are, as our name suggests, we are a carbon and chemical products producer. So we are not planning to transition away from producing carbon uh, anytime soon. Uh, But we have had a a pretty uh, intensive effort, I would say, in the last 18 months, focused on what we can do to improve our sustainability performance. So just to walk you through a couple of the initiatives and projects that we're working on in that area. So the first one, which we've, you know, we presented a paper on this last year's TMS meeting on our uh, ACP technology and hydrous carbon pellets. So we are currently building a commercial plant at our Chalmette Calciner in, in Louisiana. Um, so this is a technology where essentially we will reduce the uh, the tons of green coke required to produce each ton of, of calcite pet coke. So that'll help us reduce our CO2 emissions, our SO2 emissions, um, as well as producing a product which um, you know has a high bulk density and will help our you know aluminum smelting customers. So I think that's a very good development for us in terms of reducing at least our carbon footprint. And then we have you know we are, we've just finished constructing a shaft calciner in India. Um, that is a technology also that uh, uses less uh, GPC per ton of, of CPC. So it has a, um, a yeah, good carbon footprint story. Uh, and that calciner also, um, you know, we employ SO2 scrubbing at most of our, you know, anode grade coke uh, calciners. And that new shaft calciner will have uh, our most sophisticated SO2 scrubber, so an ammonia scrubber, which is able to remove up to 99% plus of the SO2. Our current calciner in here is already very efficient at 98%, but this this is even more efficient and will produce a byproduct then that'll be used in the in the fertilizer industry in, in India. Another example of something we've done in the last 10 years to again on this from a sustainability perspective, we again in India we um, used to uh, burn quite a lot of uh, low sulfur heavy stock fuel oil in our calcining kilns. Um, so we needed to supplement the heat for calcination by by burning that fuel oil. We've now completely uh, eliminated that during our routine production by uh, building uh, an oxygen plant. So the oxygen plant we 
uh, we use power from our waste heat energy uh, re recovery system, which, which generates uh, electricity, and we use that to uh, power the oxygen plant, which makes oxygen, which we inject in the kiln, and that, that eliminates the, uh, you know, the need for the fuel oil. Um, so that's some of the things we're doing in the calcining business unit. Um, if you look elsewhere in our global organization, we have a, a pretty major effort underway in Europe to, which is focused on improving our energy efficiency. Um, so, and I think Europe is quite a way ahead of the US in terms of some of the initiatives in the European Union to drive organizations to be more energy efficient. Um, and some of the learnings from Europe were you know, trans, uh, transferring to our US and India organization. Um, we recently commissioned a new uh, hydrogenated and hydrocarbon resins plant um, in, uh, in Germany, which, which will produce a much higher value-added uh, hydrocarbon resin, so that will be used in the food, uh, food industry and healthcare product industry. Um, something for us for the future, uh, we already supply some uh, coating and binder pitches into the lithium-ion battery market. Uh, and we see that as a very big, uh, you know, growth area for us. Um, and so we, so just coming back to your question about, you know, the low carbon aluminum future, um, obviously there is a lot of focus now in the aluminum industry to reduce its carbon footprint, given, you know, the amount of CO2 emissions that the industry generates around the world. Um, so we definitely want to be part of that, um, you know, part of that, that drive to reduce emissions. So we've, we've been very active in that industry. Uh, so we we presented a paper last year, for example, on uh, what our CO2 footprint is. Now have a modelling group set up um, in Germany that does the CO2 footprint modelling, and so we're able to use that to uh, you know identify just what our carbon footprint is right through the aluminium supply chain. Um, and then you know recently we were we played a pretty key role in organising a keynote session at the TMS meeting on. Uh, you know, sustainability in the aluminum supply chain. So there is a lot of work around the world on all parts of the supply chain. So, you know, in the aluminum production, obviously the smelting, and then we're trying to do our piece in the in the carbon supply chain. So that's sort of an overview of some of the things we're doing now. So as you mentioned, the ACP are still originally derived from green pet coke from crude oil processing. Um, we've seen over this past year how a decline in transport fuel use directly translates to very tight uh, green anode coke availability. While this is in some ways temporary, do we see some refineries transitioning to hydrocracking or biodiesel or just shutting down, um, you know, in a new, uh, new kind of market? So is this transition, I mean, we're seeing maybe electric cars, um, you know, differences in air travel. Is this something that you are looking into in terms of alternatives to petroleum-based carbon anodes? Well, we have done some work in the past on biocarbon alternatives. So there is, I would say, an active body of research going on around the world. It's been going on now for more than 10 years to see whether there are biocarbon alternatives to both uh, calcined pet coke and, and coal tar pitch. Um, so, so we've tested some bio cokes. We've also tested a bio pitch. Um, and I would say our experience is not too much different to others um, in that with the bio cokes, the big challenges tend to be, and, and when I talk about a bio coke, so charcoal is probably 
the most widely tested, you know, biocode that's out there. Um, and the, the, the significant challenges with biocode materials are re reactivity. So you tend to have some, you have a structure which is um, a fairly highly reactive structure. Um, there's a lot of closed uh, porosity in the structure. Uh, it tends to be high in some trace metals like, you know, potassium, magnesium, uh, sodium and silicon. So that, so that elevates the reactivity, particularly with CO2. So you end up with very high anode consumption rates. Um, and then the other significant challenge with biocoats, and it's related to that closed porosity, uh, the bulk density of those cokes tends to be tends to be very low. Um, so when you try and use it as a replacement for for pet coke, um, you end up with a very low low density anode, very highly reactive anode. Um, so yeah, so so hydroaluminium from Norway they published a very good paper on some work they did on using uh, charcoal in anodes back in 2010. This was work done at a pilot anode scale. Um, so there's been a lot of other groups around the world have done uh, you know, similar work since then, and they've all run into the same, same kind of issues that I, that I just described. Um, and then on the bio pitches, uh, the challenge there is most of the bio pitches uh, are fairly high in oxygen content. So when you look at the the coking value of those pitches, they're much lower than a standard uh, coal tar pitch. Um, so that also has a pretty significant, uh, you know, performance impact in the anode plant. Um, and also, um, you know, in, in combination with, with, with a bio coke, uh, it's even more challenging to, to make the economic case. Um, and, and then the, the other issue with these biocarbon alternatives is just is just the, the supply avail availability. Um, so there was a recent study done in Norway, where there just simply isn't the forest capacity, um, you know, to be able to supply enough of the, enough of those materials to make to make a significant impact in the industry. So so I think in terms of are there any alternatives out there for you know calcium petcoat and coal tar pitch? The answer today is is really no. So it sounds as though there's still pretty significant challenges to removing the petroleum side from carbon anodes. Are there any other alternatives being developed to replace a carbon anode entirely? Yeah, well, I guess the big one that most people would be aware of um, at some level are inert anodes. Um, so as the name suggests, uh, inert anodes are non-consumable anodes. Um, so, you know, with a carbon anode, of course, you continuously consume the anode and generate CO2. The idea for an inert anode is that it is something that, uh, you know, has very low uh, corrosion rate and will, you know, remain in the cell for an extended period of time. So there's been work done actually all the way back to, to when the aluminum process was first discovered. So if you go and you read the, uh, you know, the Charles Hall patents that were published in sort of 1886 to 1889 period, they mentioned inert anodes. So, you know, the industry has uh, investigated, tried to develop inert anodes for a very, very long time. Um, and I think that's a testament to uh, just just the challenge, the, the you know, complexity of trying to develop that technology and produce a truly inert anode. So, so the attraction, of course, is uh, if you can make a non-consumable anode and not generate CO2, uh, that obviously in this environment where we're trying to reduce the CO, CO2 footprint, 
that's that's a very attractive technology to pursue. So an inert anode basically generates pure oxygen, you know, at, at the anode. Um, but as I say, the, the challenges there are quite significant. So if you go back to uh, 2000, uh, so Alcoa made a very big announcement in 2000 that they were very close to commercializing inert anode technology. So they basically said that within a two to three year time frame, they were going to re retrofit inert anodes to all of their existing um, smelters, you know, around the world. And so probably three or four years after that, they largely, you know, abandoned the effort because they ran into some fairly significant process challenges. Um, and I think that's a little bit symptomatic of the way uh, sort of inert anode technology has evolved and been developed. There are just a, a lot of challenges to, to get that technology to work. Um, so it's been done on a small scale. Um, and so, you know, we now have a major effort underway in Canada with the Ellisys joint venture. Um, so that's a joint venture with uh, Rio Tinto and Alcan. Um, with some very significant Canadian government funding and a little bit of funding from Apple. So they started that joint venture in 2018. And what they're doing is they're basically marrying inert anode technology with what they call wettable cathode technology. Um, and they are trying to develop a, uh, a vertical cell configuration. So you have, a, you have a series of parallel vertical anodes and cathodes um, and, and the idea there is if you do that, uh, you, you can save some energy versus trying to retrofit an inode anode to an existing sort of horizontal cathode cell, which is what Alcoa tried to do in 2000. Um, so, so that work is underway. Um, they've, you know, they finished building their R&D center, which is in, in the Saguenay region uh, in Quebec. Um, and I think they are in the process now of building uh, their first prototype cell, which is not a full-scale commercial cell. It's something smaller than that. Um, no one's cleared on exactly how long that will take. But that that technology has you know quite a long way to go in its 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 development. So people have been successful at operating you know anode cells uh, at the bench scale, and then Rusal in Russia has done quite a bit of work where they've operated cells for a period of time at a larger scale. But the challenge is always to, you know, produce uh, aluminum that's got low contamination, um, you know, concentrations at, at scale for an extended period of time. So getting the inner anode to be truly inert is one of the big challenges. Uh, and then another significant challenge is the, the energy consumption with an inner anode cell is uh, around 30% higher than a, than a carbon anode cell. Um, and that's because the re reversible potential with a, you know, an anode cell is significantly higher. Um, so, you know, in a, for a process that the, uh, the energy uh, accounts for something like 35 to 40% of the cost, that's a, that's a very substantial burden. Um, so that's been a bit of a disincentive um, in the development in the past, but, but I think the Ellisys approach where they're marrying the two technologies is the right approach because it, it can help, um, you know, reduce some of the energy gap, but it also makes technical challenge even more sort of complex than just trying to do an inode anode, trying to re re retrofit inode anodes into an existing sort of horizontal cathode cell. So, so that development's underway, but I think it has 
uh, quite a long way to go. So Ellis has basically said that they would have a commercial cell ready by 2024. Um, I think most industry experts would, would say that's extremely uh, you know, op optimistic timeframe. Um, and we're sort of three years into the uh, joint venture. So I think the Canadian government said they were funding that project for a six year period. So we're already halfway through and they're just at the point of building their first sort of intermediate scale cell. Um, so having something commercially available by 2024 seems, uh, I would say, rather, rather optimistic. So, yeah, so I think that's certainly the long-term direction for the industry, um, but people will probably say a 2035 timeframe uh, and above is, uh, I think, a more realistic sort of timeframe for, for that technology. Thanks for that explanation. With that, I think we'll stop here for today just in the interest of time. We'll pick up this discussion next week in the next episode. So thanks, Les, for joining me, and thank you, everyone, for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to tune in for the other episodes in our series, The Pet Coke Podcast. For more information on Argus Petroleum Coke coverage, please visit us at argusmedia.com. Thank you.